0: Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aidan Byrne.
1: Well, I think for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction so obviously Ireland became politically independent from Britain in 1922. In the decades following independence um, Ireland went through a very strongly anti-British phase. That was understandable given how badly Britain had often treated Ireland down the centuries. Um, But We also thought to ourselves, you know, we're not just politically independent, but also religiously and culturally independent of Britain as well, because they tried to take away our religion. And so I think what Ireland kind of decided was, okay, in reaction against that, we're going to become super Catholic (laughs) and we're going to give the Catholic Church tremendous power and influence. And that's what happened. And that is now causing a backlash. And so if you like church bashing, has replaced the brit bashing of old
2: well hello everyone out there and this is your host john Aidan byrne and you've just been listening to my recent interview in the heart of dublin's first city ireland with david quinn director of ireland's iona institute newspaper columnist author and conservative social and religious commentator David talked to me about a range of major developments in Ireland today, including how Ireland lost the pro-life Eighth Amendment, which led to the legalization of abortion in Ireland this year, Catholic church bashing in Ireland today, David's distinct and interesting view on Brexit, you won't hear among the chattering classes, and ahead of all the latest developments on the UK withdrawing from the EU. And he also talked about his splendid book, How We Killed God and Other Tales of Modern Ireland. Yes, all totally fascinating.
0: So stay tuned. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval, life on planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis.
2: Well, I'm here with David Quinn of the Iona Institute. He's the director. He's also a well-known columnist for the Sunday Times. The Iona Institute, uh, I suppose, could be described as a conservative organization, and it looks very closely at the situation in Ireland. And so I want to welcome David. Tell us a little bit about your organization.
1: So the Iona Institute, um, we get involved in a lot of media debates. Around kind of social and religious issues like right to life, marriage and the family, church and state, that kind of thing. And we are kind of very much the go to organization for radio and TV stations when they are looking for somebody to come out and give a kind of pro Catholic and pro Christian position. Because, of course, in all the socio moral issues, um, all Orthodox conservative Christians are as one, regardless of denomination.
2: How large is the organisation in terms of membership? Are you extensive?
1: Well, I mean, its I mean—in terms of staff, it's a small organisation. but uh, what we have—you know, know—we have thousands of supporters around the country. Um, but the way we tend to operate is, um, we'll find people who might be working in um, teaching or academia um, or whatever, who will go out to Bath for us on various programs on whatever issue is their area of expertise and I would do a lot of the media work myself because I've been a journalist now or a newspaper, national newspaper columnist since 1994.
2: Well, there's been a lot of work in the last couple of years and uh, so maybe you could take us through that. A lot of changes to Irish laws which have surprised and shocked many people internationally.
1: So, um, I actually came out with a book of my columns uh, there about 18 months ago and um, so the title of the book was um, How We Killed God and Other Tales of Modern Ireland. Because having had a national newspaper column since 1994, I've been kind of writing and speaking about all the enormous changes that have taken place in Ireland in all that time. And so I suppose to kind of sum it up at one level is um, Ireland, or at least its kind of official face, but also a lot of general society as well, is in massive rebellion against its Catholic legacy. What brought this about? Well, I think for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So obviously, Ireland became politically independent from Britain in 1922. And in the decades following independence, um, Ireland went through a very strongly anti-British phase. That was understandable, given how badly Britain had often treated Ireland down the centuries. Um, but we also thought to ourselves, you know, we're not just politically independent, but also religiously and culturally independent of Britain as well, because they tried to take away our religion. And so I think what Ireland kind of decided was, okay, in reaction against that, we're going to become super Catholic. (laughs) And we're going to give the Catholic church tremendous power and influence. And that's what happened. And that is now causing a backlash. And so if you like church bashing, has replaced the Brit-bashing of old, although Brexit has brought back some of their bit-bashing, too. But it's very hard now to find a politician, bar a handful, who will say anything good about the Catholic Church or our Catholic past. It is continually, continually attacked. And of course, the abuse scandals, which Americans will be very familiar with, um, also the tremendous damage to the reputation of the church. And to give some uh, historical
2: perspective, 50s and 60s Ireland had a lot of vocations, it was sending priests abroad because there was no room for them here, mm. um, religious orders flourished, everybody was attending church, mm. um, it was just embedded in our life and culture. The, the shift has been dramatic.
1: But you see what the Irish tend to do is um, we go all in with something and then we go all out. Um, so. We went all in with the church, and now many of us have gone all out uh, on the church, so that has left it uh, big time. So, if you go back to, we'd say, 1980, the percentage of Catholics who were going to mass every week was probably about 90%. It's now down to about maybe 30 or 33%, and they would tend to be on the older side as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, there's been a mass exodus from the church. So, again, we were all in with the church, and now we're all out with the church. So, vocations were huge and now vocations have shrunk. Uh, People were once all Roman Catholic and now different place kind of RC with PC. They've been all politically correct. And we saw that with the two referendums in the last few years, the one four years ago, which was about gay marriage. And that was passed by a 62 to 38% margin. And now we had the one even more disastrous about abortion last year. And that was passed by a 66 to 33% margin. So that was even worse. And you just found uh, that uh, Uh, so many people who you would have thought were going to vote in favour of the right to life and keeping the constitutional provision that supports the right to life of the unborn. You met people who you would think would vote to keep that right to life provision were actually voting against it. About a third of weekly mass goers voted to repeal the right to life from the Constitution and uh, effectively vote for a law that allows an abortion regime that is roughly as permissive as Britain's, where there are uh, about one in four or five pregnancies ends in abortion every year. And so we have voted for that kind of a regime here.
2: When you talk about the campaign on both sides, uh, how did the Catholic Church participate in it? Did they step up and voice their opposition to repeal?
1: Well, I mean, the first thing obviously is we had nearly the entirety of the mainstream media in favour of repealing the Eighth Amendment, and that's the Pro-Life Amendment. Which was put into the constitution back in 1983 by a two-to-one margin and then repealed by a two-to-one margin so the media all the way along for the 35 years leading up the last year's referendum were campaigning to get rid of that pro-life amendment and so what they would do is they would constantly highlight the hard cases the tragic cases that cast the pro-life point of view in a bad light and those hard cases are the ones that americans will be very familiar with rape cases um, cases the so-called fake fetal abnormality where a baby is diagnosed with a condition which means it won't live long after birth maybe only days or weeks after birth and so these are all genuinely tragic cases and people were kind of fooled into thinking um, that's all we're voting for we're only voting to allow abortion in these hard cases but in fact what we've done is we voted for a law that permits abortion for any reason up to 12 weeks 90 percent of abortions take place in the first 12 weeks but for any reason there's not to be any kind of health ground whatsoever and then after that, on very broad health-related grounds. Um, so the media very uh, carefully conditioned the public to think this was about the hard cases. And um, when we would point out, that that is the pro-life movement in general, would point out, well hang on a second, if we go down that path, we're not just voting for the hard cases, we're voting for anything at all. And we point out what was happening in places like America or Britain <laughs> and so on. People either turned a deaf ear or simply thought we were making it up. Now you ask about the church's role. so. You see, the church, because it's been so reputationally damaged by its past kind of over dominance and by the scandals, was in a position where if a bishop spoke out about something, it would nearly lose your votes rather than gain your votes. But we all took the view that it still had a role in convincing mass goers. So the general public, as far as the church would be concerned, lost cause, probably do more harm than good to speak out. But mass goes a different story. So I mean I was saying that about a third of Catholics who go to mass every week, that's still about a million people. Mm-hmm. If they had all come out and voted to keep the 8th Amendment, the pro-life amendment, we would have won. But about 400,000 of them stayed home. And about 200,000 of them voted yes. And that was just catastrophic. So there was, I mean all the bishops spoke out in favour of the right to life, um, a lot of priests did. But it wasn't consistent enough. And it wasn't urgent enough. And I think a lot of priests were kind of scared of being um, uh, um, upbraided by, and given out to, by parishioners. Because obviously, you know, a priest is looking at all his congregation of the Sunday and he's thinking, some of you may have had abortions, and we have daughters and sisters who have had abortions. And I don't want you to be thinking I'm harsh and judgmental. And I don't want you to be coming up after mass to give out to me for being insensitive. Uh, "Quote unquote" about the abortion issue, so a lot of priests kind of uh, didn't really pull their weight. There's plenty of exceptions, but a lot of really pulled their weight in the way they ought to have, in my opinion. Can we just talk generally about Ireland. It still
2: feels like a Catholic country. I, I'm from originally from Ireland, and when I come back home, you you still feel and it's a bit of a cliche, I recognise, but you do feel that the, the friendliness of the people, the hospitality, the Christianity, even. Much different than you would get in New York City, for example. The churches are still here, obviously. There's uh, church fundraisers, and it's embedded in the culture of those First Communions and those pilgrimages.
1: Well, there's an awful lot of what you might call cultural Catholicism about, by which I mean um, people who would still identify as Catholics. They wouldn't go to Mass much at all, but they still like to use the church for weddings and funerals, and they still like it shouldn't be baptized and to make First Holy Communion and Confirmation. So there is a certain level of identification. Um, an awful lot of those kind of cultural Catholics, and as you know, that concept is very familiar in America as well. A um, an awful lot of those, you know, cultural Catholics vote yes, but they would still regard themselves as kind of spiritual. Mm-hmm. You know, that's often the term. Well, I am spiritual, but not very religious, because they see religion as all about the institution and, and authority and obeying, and they think you know, themselves being kind of free and independent people, but who have completely lost sight of God. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of that in Ireland, still that kind of cultural Catholicism. I mean, it's a mixed blessing, really, because um, if you go to First Holy Communion and you witness them, and all of those parents aren't practicing, they, they almost never go to Mass. The children, therefore, almost never go to Mass. And the occasion resembles more of a day out than a sacred occasion. Mm-hmm. I don't want to sound stuffy and overly pious about that, but honestly, uh, that's, it resembles more as, I say, a day out.
2: I mean, rising affluence has obviously played into how Ireland has changed in the last twenty years, mm. thirty years with our membership of the EU, which that also brings us to Brexit and what might happen in the in the weeks ahead.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, I'm kind of unusual in that I kind of describe myself as a kind of Brexit agnostic almost. Um, so most Irish people are completely against Brexit and Britain leaving the EU. Um, I would sympathise a little bit with the motivations of the 52% who voted to leave the EU because um, the, like the slogan of that referendum was take back control and they wanted, to, they wanted to take back control of their laws and their lawmaking from Brussels and take it back a little bit more control over immigration policy as well um, and a bit more over economic policy and so on. Now you can argue the toss on that but I think it's a mistake to simply say that everybody who voted for Brexit is a small-minded English bigot mm. okay, and xenophobe. I think that's... Uh, Far too um, uh, stereotyping. Uh, The same thing goes on in America, of course. uh, You know, people who vote for the Republican Party, I think there's too much stereotyping of them also goes on. The stereotyping goes both ways, of course. But anyway, Brexit if there's an no deal Brexit, that is, if Britain leaves without an agreement with the EU, and particularly without a decent trade agreement, it will affect Ireland very badly because we do a load of trade, obviously, still with Britain. And even the goods we have that are bound for Europe will often go through Britain. Um, So I hope that um, if and when Britain leaves, it will be via a deal with the EU that will mean Ireland doesn't get harmed by Brexit.
2: Well, there's great fear about a no-deal Brexit and tensions in the north and south the border issue. Mm. Is is that a concern?
1: Well, yes, but there's been a lot of scaremongering about a a return to border posts such as would have existed uh, before the peace process. And so you know you get stopped by police or army at the border and the car checked and all that kind of thing. Because that would you know, these were the days of the troubles, as they would call the violence and the IRA and all that kind of thing. Um, but actually, the government is now admitting uh, there won't be checkpoints at the border. They can check, and it'll be mainly um, not all, not ordinary private private individuals they'd be checking, they'd be checking uh big trucks carrying goods back and forth, that they would check them. A few miles before they get to the border, or a few miles after they get over to the Irish, at least the Republic mm. south side of the border, so no border posts. Um, so, if if Britain leaves and there is a deal, and there is eventually a very good trade deal between Britain and the EU, which means with Ireland and, and uh, with Ireland and Britain, because we're obviously part of the EU, uh, we're simply not going to get a return to the sort of border that we had before and even if there is no deal there still won't be a return to the kind of border we had before the peace process.
2: Well there will clearly be a break though you have the north out of the EU and the south Mm -hmm. in the EU. Does Mm -hmm. it raise issues with smuggling and all that kind of stuff?
1: Well I mean there is a fair amount of smuggling taking place anyway Mm -hmm. um, because prices are different north Mm -hmm. and south of the border Um, and there will probably be more smuggling. But the total amount of trade that the Republic does with the North is three percent of our total
0: mm-hmm.
1: of exports. So it's very, very small. Um, I mean, obviously, um, the great you know the bulk of our trade now is via the big the big tech multinationals, mm-hmm. so the likes of Facebook and Google and Microsoft and all these sort of very big high tech companies uh, who are in the information economy and so on. So actually, they represent an absolutely massive amount of our trade, and it goes nowhere near the North. Mm-hmm. So, are you like it go to Europe?
2: There's actually a political vacuum in the North at the moment, and uh, we've seen it on speaking of abortion, uh, the, the, the possibility of abortion being legalized now in the North because of what's going on there. Can you speak to that?
1: Okay, so, I mean, even though the North of Ireland is part of the United Kingdom, like Scotland, um, it has its own local assembly. So, it's a bit like the states in America, you know, you've got the federal government and then you've got individual state senates and so on. So uh, the north of Ireland has its own local assembly as it's called but this is kind of its own local parliament and it's, a lot of, it's allowed to make a lot of local uh, north of Ireland laws but because of a big disagreement between the unionists and essentially Sinn Féin uh, the assembly has been suspended for a long time now and so there has been a kind of um, absence of government in the north and of course not helped by Brexit um, there's this huge fighting obviously going on, going on over that as well because the unionists and um, and, uh, and the nationalists, led these days by Sinn Féin, would have usually divergent opinions about uh, Britain and Brexit. Um, so, anyway, into the vacuum has stepped the British House of Commons, and they have said unless the Northern Ireland Assembly reconvenes by late October, we are going to impose a very liberal abortion regime on you, and we're also going to impose gay marriage on you.
2: Um, so, just wrapping up here, David. Um, what's the future for Ireland? Do you have any hope on it, You know, the positives, the negatives. Um, maybe we'll see some changes in the next election, which could help the pro-life and pro-family cause, and and and, and people on your
1: side. Um, I think, like Americans, uh, this is pro-life Americans after Roe versus Wade in nineteen seventy-three, have to take a long-term view. Um, so. In 1973, when Roe versus Wade legalizes abortion right across all 50 states in America, um, the pro-life view could have easily folded up its tents and gone home and thinking it's all over. Mm-hmm. But it they didn't. They, they said, OK, got to resist this, and we've got to take a very long-term view. And here we are now, what was it, 46 years after Roe versus Wade? It hasn't been repealed, but the pro-life movement is very much alive and well in America. Now, the pro-life movement is uh, here in Ireland um, is not going to come back. Um, anytime soon in, in the sense of coming to real political influence again anytime soon. So what it's got to make sure is there is still enough support in the general population for us to grow in the future and have political influence again in the future but we're, but we're talking about something that's not short term that's very much medium to long term. So David just quick, uh, where can people read your
2: column and uh, your website and the name of your book again and who, where can they order it?
1: Thank you. So, um, and the website is Iona, I-O-N-A institute.ie. Um so they'll see there what we do. Um, I write for the Sunday Times Ireland edition, so if they simply looked up David Quinn Sunday Times, they'll be able to find some of my columns. I also write for the Irish Catholic newspaper, which I used to edit, and the Irish Catholic is the biggest selling Catholic paper in the country, so that's irishcatholic.ie, so that's where they will find all my various things. And the book again, which is a book of uh, a selection of my columns going back to 1994 so it very much kind of um, charts and comments on all the massive changes in Ireland as I say since the mid 90s and that book is called How We Killed God and Other Tales of Modern Ireland and of course we didn't literally kill God but you can secularize a place so much that people don't think of God anymore.
2: David Quinn uh, we're here in Dublin thank you for your time.
0: You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973 664 9460 in the U.S., or email burndesk at gmail.com.